has to work quickly. Down to six seconds. Carr going down again. And it's Quentin Williams this time for the Jets. The middle in the air. Picked off. Brian Poole to the end zone. Touchdown. Hunter to beat. And the punter brings him down. Brayton Mann saved a touchdown most likely. Looks right. Fires a bomb down the right sideline again for Mims. What a catch by Denzel Mims. And welcome back episode of the Cooler Jets podcast where host Ben Blessington and Michael Nania returning from a few week vacation uh, and Michael in the meantime the Jets have been busy at OTAs they start mini camp next week a lot to talk about in this podcast we'll be going over some OTA impressions and we'll hop into a mailbag um, the plan for the podcast throughout the summer just to, to get this the schedule straight is we'll have our normal Monday one hour long podcast Michael and I will just go over some topics and, and have a mailbag and then on Thursdays We'll have a special episode dropping each week. So, I mean, that might be player profiles or interviews. Um, we've kind of set up some stuff. And then during the season, there'll be game previews. So we have a whole schedule set. So don't miss. Turn on your tweet notifications. Subscribe to CYJ on iTunes. Um, but, Michael, let's hop into our OTA impressions. I think this is probably the most amount of OTA coverage I've ever seen. Um, and maybe that's just because it's all positive vibes. So I've been just reading more. But I don't remember OTAs in June getting this much coverage. Am I wrong? No, I totally agree with you. I feel like it's been covered a lot more intensely than it has been in the past, especially compared to last year. Obviously, coverage was limited with COVID and everything. But even before that, I feel like we never got quite as much coverage as we have for OTAs because it feels like we're getting training camp level coverage right now. Like, right. We'll see this in training camp with the passing stats and the play-by-play. But And we have seen this in OTAs, we do, but to this level, it does feel like we've gotten a little bit more intense coverage this year, which is great. And like you said, it's been so positive that it's been enjoyable to take in just to, you know, hop on Twitter when practice is going on and just refresh and see all the plays rolling in, then to read the analysis afterwards. Robbie has had great notes at Jets X Factor after each practice, Um, so uh, it, it's been fun to follow because that positive energy that started out in the first few months of the offseason with firing Gase to hiring Salah to a very productive free agency period to a draft that, that I think most Jets fans are happy with. It's all carried into the practice, um, to the practices so far. The Everything that has been said by the players and the coaches has been extremely encouraging. Some of the early developments with key players in the roster has been great. So it's the vibes are extremely positive out of camp. And I definitely haven't or have OTA so far. And I definitely don't think that there has been an OTAs period. That's been this encouraging in recent right. years. Yeah, I know. We, maybe we should have been more alarmed with last year's um, performance, just reading it. Because these these team activities, these seven-on-sevens, these minimal contact, I mean, that's aimed for the offense to succeed. And I remember seeing tweets during training camp or mini camp about Sam Darnold not particularly performing well, the offense as a whole not performing well. And it's like, okay, don't read too much into it. Um, I, mean, I guess that was more during training camp because I didn't have any mini camp uh, or OTAs last year, but reading about training camp and it's like, oh, this team just is, needs time to gel and whatnot. And look, we'll see the product on the field. I'm sure there's going to be growing pains for both sides of the ball, but it seems like this team is really coming together. And yeah, I mean, what a change this, this has been for the Jets in the last six months. I mean, you think about what we were talking about in this podcast, you know, in December or January, lamenting the Jets for winning a single game and costing themselves uh, Trevor Lawrence. But like you said, I mean, the hiring of Robert Sala is the catalyst for all this. That was the biggest thing the Jets did this entire offseason. And I think in an offseason that 
like you said, I think many Jets fans are happy with. I would give it an A. I don't think the Jets, and look, we'll see how they perform on the field, but just on paper at the outlook, we talked about how important this offseason was and how much we were going to learn about Joe Douglas and how much this offseason can change the fortunes of the franchise, even if they're not a playoff team this year. It was just a really important offseason to get the ball moving in the right direction. And I, I really think the Jets did that. And we'll see how it turns out. But Robert Sala is just you know, I, maybe it's just the fact that they're attending Islanders games and Nets games and just the positive yeah. vibes all and the way he's interacting with the beat and you right. see him addressing the team. And he just seems like the Jets have a real CEO, a real leader. And, you know, I think we've said CEO on this podcast, maybe 2000 times, especially when we were doing the, the head coach and candidate profile breakdowns, but the Sala hiring to, like you said, a free agent period where they landed in our eyes, one of our favorite free agents, if not our favorite free agent in Carl Lawson and a great fit in Corey Davis, among others. And then a draft where I feel like the Jets walked out of there with three first round picks um, and a few other guys. I mean, I think the Jets are going to end up having at least five rookie starters next year for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Joe Douglas really um, got the ball moving in the right direction. We'll see if it, if it works out on the field, but um, I guess you can't fault the attempt. So let's just talk about some of our initial OTA impressions Obviously, I guess we should start with Salah. We kind of been talking about it a little bit. I, I don't think we got a single video of Adam Gase addressing the team um, at practice during his entire tenure. Maybe that was because he never did it. I don't it. think Maybe one exists. I think that's that, what it is. He either never did it or they were just never inspiring. I think we've gotten maybe one or two from Salah. And I'm ready to run through a brick wall for this guy. Um, I guess just can you just talk about the difference? I know we've kind of been talking about it, but just at practice and kind of the the – the energy that's radiating off this team, how it's affecting you and your coverage of the team. It's, it's definitely been easier this year, I think, to write positive things and feel positive things and actually feel that they're legitimate, that they're things that actually could play out. It doesn't feel like that you're forcing yourself to feel optimistic, that you have to make up reasons to feel good about the team. It really feels like, that the things that they're doing are going to play out the way that you want them to as a fan and that they do as an organization. I put out a tweet a couple of days ago. Um, the Jets signed or they hired the guy I wanted at head coach in Salah. He was my number one. I said it on this podcast. I believe he he might have been your number one guy too. Was he, he was number two behind Pat Fitzgerald. Number two. So out of, out of feasible candidates. But, but, but still, they hired Salah, who I think was a dream candidate for, for most of us. He was my number one. Carl Lawson was probably my favorite edge rusher candidate. I had him number one in terms of pass rushing out of free agent edge rushers on a list that was stats based. They signed him Corey Davis. I had him number one on the free agent wide receiver list. That's based on a bunch of different efficiency stats. They signed him. So there, and also Zach Wilson was mine outside of Trevor Lawrence preferred quarterback. I've went back and forth with him in fields, but ultimately Wilson was, probably always the guy who I thought was the best option for them. They traded Sam Darnold like I wanted them to and didn't, you know, fall into that trap. They addressed offensive line in the first round like we wanted them to. So they did all the things, not that fan general managers are always right, but they did a lot of the things that were clear issues and they addressed them in the best way possible. Exactly. And they did off season. So we're not just sitting here right now and being like, okay, Rashad Perriman. Yeah. Okay. I'm just like <laughs> rationalizing or right. George fan, no offense to George fan. I think he's a great fitness offense and he'll do good things, but that was like your biggest money signing last year, but right. it's not like we're just rationalizing, making 
making up reasons to be excited. They got a lot of the people who we wanted. Salah, Zach Wilson, Carl Lawson, Corey Davis. These are people who Elijah we actually... Elijah Vera Tucker was literally probably the dream first-round pick. Obviously, trade up to get him. But he was the dream first-round pick, I think, for me at least, falling to number 23. So they got guys we actually wanted because we identified them beforehand and said these guys make sense to fill the weaknesses right. that they have. And now they're here. So we're not making up reasons to be excited. Yeah, there's still plenty of question marks on this team, but I think the biggest thing that separates them from last year's team is it feels like they have legitimate shots at, at answers to those questions. I mean, there's a question about, okay, how good is, can Elijah Vera Tucker be as a rookie? Can he put up a Becton like rookie season and come in immediately and be a starting caliber guard? That's a question, but I feel fairly confident about the answer. I do think, think he's going to slide in next to Beckton. He might have some rookie lumps or whatever, um, but I feel like I feel pretty confident that Vera Tucker is going to be a starter in this team um, for a while. I mean, there's questions about how Zach Wilson's going to perform, but unlike a guy in Sam Darnold, who me and you, I guess, were both pretty optimistic about, but you yeah. were still talking yourselves through some of the mistakes that he made throughout his first two seasons, specifically the second season when he had that, that three-game stretch. I mean, we did a whole film review on him, and we were looking at the New England game, the Jacksonville game, and we were kind of talking about um, we kind of ignored, I guess, the, the end of his 2019 season. In retrospect, I think we didn't, we weren't objective enough on the end of Sam Darnold's 2019 season. The fact that after that Baltimore game, it didn't look that pretty, even though they won the, the game against the Steelers, even though they won the game against the Bills. It feels like, and then you talk about Carl Lawson, who I think, like you said, was the best edge rusher on the market. Despite the five sacks, you look at the pressures that he put up and the situation that he's in. he was in uh, in Cincinnati. Now you add him to a Robert Sala defense, which he's a perfect fit for. You put him in that Nick Bosa-Leo role, and you put him on a defensive line that is loaded with talent. I mean, this is the most deep position on the entire team. I think every position outside of cornerback, I would say I'm very comfortable with how the Jets address it. It doesn't mean that they're all going to work. But I think that at the end of the season, you're going to say, okay, where the Jets are today versus where they were 365 days ago, night and day. I think the cornerback position is the only spot where I'm like, they could have done a little bit more there, but they had so many holes that you can't really address everything in one offseason. And I think what the Jets did or Joe Douglas' strategy partly was to make good positions great and make, you know, okay positions good and he didn't focus on a position like cornerback trying to make it a great position he didn't dump too many assets into it he looked at his defensive line and said look we got a stud in Quinn and Williams we have other great players like Florenzo Fadikasi and, and John Franklin Myers let's add to it let's go get a guy like Carl Lawson let's go get a guy like um, Sheldon Rankins uh, we look at our offensive line it's like okay we have Makai Becton there let's go and put Elijah Bear Tucker and, and beef up that left side of the offensive line let's go and add some great parts to this team cornerback there wasn't just an, there just wasn't enough assets to do that. I like Bryce Hall. We'll see how how bless Austin Isaiah Dunn, um, whatever other you know answers they have to those questions are. Obviously, the Robert Sala defense doesn't rely on amazing cornerback play, but that would be the only spot in this team that I that I would say I'm you know incredibly worried about, and still think that the Jets are going to have to make some um, move. Definitely going to have to make some moves after the season. Um, and I, I want to dip into the mailbag a little bit early here. We'll come back to topics and fill out the mailbag. But the first part of at Joey Shadle's question uh, is the wave of optimism around this team is tough to blindly embrace. So bring us back to earth. What's the worst possible season for the Jets this year? Is more to that question. We'll come back to it, but just so it doesn't seem like we're completely unbiased or completely biased Jets fans here, Michael, I guess talk about some of your concerns with this team. I mentioned the cornerbacks, but how do you see this, you know, positive energy? Obviously it's great. Obviously everybody feels confident about the season, but 
what are some of your biggest concerns about this unit? I guess to answer this question, the worst possible season for the Jets has to start with Zach Wilson being unimpressive. But even the thing with that is he is only a rookie, so no matter what he does, even if he's absolutely terrible, it's still only his first season, so you can't read into it too much. But there is a bar you'd like him to clear. You don't want him to be Josh Rosen. You don't want him to be, um, you know, I mean, Josh Allen's rookie year was very bad. He did eventually overcome it, but he is massive outlier to have done that you, you don't want to have a rookie season that's really really bad that doesn't put the odds in your favor so if Wilson has an extremely rough rookie season then that's problematic I think it all starts with that um, but then I think it also comes down to this rookie class and last year's rookie class in terms of this team having a worst possible season does Mekhi Becton continue to deal with injuries does Denzel Mims not develop Bryce Hall Ashton Davis then looking at this class, is Elijah Moore not that special? Does Vera Tucker have particular issues? So the Jets having a worst possible season, I think, all has to come down to specifically Wilson and the development of both this year's draft class and last year's because we know the Jets aren't trying to – that isn't the goal to make the playoffs this year necessarily. Well, um, they they could. They're capable of I, it. I would say that's probably <laughs> that's probably Robert Saul's goal is to try to make – It's I their goal. It's their goal. But from our perspective – right. This is still a team in transition. The main thing is you want to establish the core, find your pieces. They make the playoffs great, but for the most part, it's just about establishing the foundation right now. Right, so exactly. if you're not doing that, then that's how you can have a worst possible type of season. Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is when you look at the great teams around the league, like you look at Kansas City, you have a lot of certainties. You know Andy Reid's a great coach. You know Patrick Mahomes is arguably the best I'm going to say the best quarterback in the league. I know I'm really brave for that take, you know, that uh, what Tyree kill brings, you know, what Travis Kelsey brings, etc. with this jets team. I don't think there's really any certainties outside of maybe Quinn and Williams being good. I mean, I, but even that was a big question mark last season. So, and he's only had really one good, really good year in the bank. So there's not really many certainties around this team. Hell, even a guy like Becton, like you mentioned, I think he's a certainty, but then you look at that injury history and it's like, like you mentioned, there's a, there's a possibility that this plantar fasciitis injury that he has lingers into the season, or maybe he picks up other injuries and how he only plays four games or something like that. There's just, there's a lot of question marks around this team. And I think they have a good chance at answering a lot of those. I really like what they've done, but the lack of certainty around this team means that I could see them winning four games and I could see them winning 10 games. It just, it, you don't really know. I feel comfortable somewhere in the middle. I kind of feel around seven, eight games is, is what this team uh, is good for. You mentioned Denzel Mims, and there was an interesting um, kind of uh, interesting report from Connor Hughes talking about that Keelan Cole has been uh, running with the ones more than Mims. Mims has struggled with some injuries, but even when he's been out there, he struggled with some drops a little bit. He's you know made some plays, but he's been primarily rolling with the twos, mainly because you know, and we talked about this a little bit when we had Oscar Aparicio on that he's not an ideal scheme fit. And LaFleur already said that he's going to try to build the offense around the players that he has. So I imagine he has a plan and a role for Denzel Mims in mind, but does it surprise you at all that And look, it's OTAs. I mean, we have to see, still see mini camp. Corey Davis has to get back out there. Crowder has to get back. We'll see training camp preseason. Like, so it's very possible that Mims opens up as the day one uh, number two guy opposite Corey Davis, but is it, surprising to you that Cole um, is getting the uh, the reps over Mims? I think it is a little bit surprising, but like you said, it's really early. I don't think I'm looking into it too much right now. 
and he was off the field for a little bit. Um, so I'm not reading into it too much, but I think one thing, key thing to keep in mind here is that Keelan Cole is pretty good. He didn't put up the most amazing numbers in Jacksonville, but nobody would with those quarterbacks. Uh, although DJ Chark had some good years there, but um, he's a pretty good player. And if he is your, you know, fifth or sixth best receiver, even fourth best receiver, that's a, that's very good depth in this league. So um, it doesn't necessarily surprise me that he's playing as well as he apparently has been and is challenging for starting reps, because I think he is a very solid player. And I I like that signing quite a bit. And they gave him a decent number um, up to 5 million max this year, which isn't nothing that definitely could be, you know, number two receiver starting type of money. So doesn't necessarily surprise me to see him doing well, but to be getting reps over Mims is a little bit surprising, but we'll see what happens as the offseason plays out. Mims missed some time. Uh, like you said, he's not the most ideal fit in this offense. I think Cole probably is a better fit. So maybe he does have a little bit more to prove to the coaching staff to earn a starting spot, but we'll see. Obviously, Mims is the superior talent. Showed us a lot last season, but with some time, I think he should eventually settle back into that number two spot. Yeah, I think if Mims wasn't as good of a run blocker as he is, I'd be a little bit more concerned about his fit. But because he's such a good run blocker, I think that's one of the biggest traits you need to succeed in this offense. And I think, yeah, LaFleur is going to have to create him his own role. I don't think you're going to see a situation where Mims is inactive on game day or anything like that, or um, not getting on the field. I think he's going to get his reps. It's just, is he going to be used as the fourth receiver or the second receiver? Um, Yeah, he is more of a vertical straight line guy, but I really liked um, a lot of the things he did. And we talked about it when we were in the lead up to the draft about how he is a very similar type of receiver to the type of uh, receiver that, that Zach Wilson had in Provost and a guy like Dax Milne. I mean, I was excited to see kind of the back shoulder fade, which I think is probably Denzel Mims's best route, at least that we saw in the NFL. And it's arguably Zach Wilson's best throw. Um, so I think there's a potential there for them to have some chemistry, but you're right. I mean, when you look at the prototypical LaFleur or Shanahan offense, he's maybe not the most exact scheme fit, but I still think there's a, is a very good chance that he fits in here nicely. And I, like you said, Keelan Cole won his helmet, probably the coolest in the league. Right. I mean, are you, you're a fan of the helmet, right? Yeah, it's pretty solid. I also like the, um, his new, uh, tagline for the jets jets up, uh, go jets. Oh, you're right in the video. Yeah. He didn't really know what it was. Yeah. Well, I heard him say when they were breaking the huddle, if you, Maybe it was a few days ago. They said jet up. And I was like, didn't we trash that back in 2018? We brought back take flight. It's on the you know stadium banners and everything. Like, what, what are we still doing with jet up? And know, we got to change make... the hashtag too. Why is it still take flight? Just make it all gas, no break. Well, especially since take flight got hijacked yeah. by, by uh, um, I forget exactly which team it was, but it was a WNBA team. Now they have the hashtags. So now when you put the hashtag, their logo comes up. So it's like, all right, that's fine. They can have it. Let's just have all gas, no break. Take another, flight was... another, another thing is I think the um, the huddle chant or whatever you want to call it, I think it needs to be all gas, no break. Like you could have one player kind of lead it, screaming like all gas, and then the rest of the team responds, no break. You know, I think that works. Kind of replacing the home of the Jets. Thing. That's That's probably the lamest thing I've ever heard. That's not- what chant isn't lame. What chant isn't lame? The I, Jets chant I, is literally spelling the name. Yeah, I get, but it's got history. It's got tradition. And but hey, you can't get history. It has to start at some point. I think the all gas, no break thing is lame. And a chant. I, I think it's cool. I, I, as Robert saw, I think it's lame. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with 
and home of the Jets. Just the problem with the take flight is that all I think of is the free agent videos they made back in 2018 or 2019 <laughs> of like Le'Veon Bell and like Josh Bellamy and CJ Mosley all like, you know, recording their, you know, them signing the contract and going take flight. And that's now it's, that's all I think of. So you mean like those videos could be in like, um, top 10 videos just before disaster. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think on a brief side note? What do you think about Le'Veon trashing Andy Reid? Uh, I'm I've been I was a big Le'Veon fan when he was here and even after he left. But this is this is out of character for him. This is definitely not respectable. What he's been saying. It's I mean he uh, chose to sign with like yeah, the you, number one passing offense <laughs> with a rookie. He didn't ahead play of. great when he got his chances. So it's it, you think is, he's washed? Yeah, at this point, and especially he's not helping himself with this stuff. But um, you were talking about Keon Cole. I, I was just going to say, I do like his fit a lot in this offense. And when we're talking about Jamison Crowder and potentially, apparently they're working on restructuring his deal. He's supposed to be a mini camp this next week. Um, you know, there's some fans that are talking about cutting Crowder. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The Jets finally have depth at receiver, which I think is probably the most important position to have depth at. It may not be the most important position, but it's the most important position to have good, valuable depth because receivers get injured more than any other position. I don't have any numbers to back that up. I'm just going to say that. Um, but I just like the fact that no matter what, Zach Wilson will not be throwing to practice squad players and guys the Jets signed off the street three days ago and are forcing to play. Um, I like the fact that even if their starters go down, the Jets can still field a unit of Elijah Moore and of Keelan Cole uh, or Denzel Mims or whoever it is. And hell, Braxton Berrios is playing out during practice. Um, so I like that the Jets have depth there and I don't want to mess with it. So whether it's, I think Cole may be a more of a stereotypical fit in this offense. I think he's very similar to core. I think he's kind of a poor man's Corey Davis in my eyes. I think Mims brings you something different. So I think it's important to give him his own role. Um, but Cole can block too. So right. Exactly. That's, that's the trait between all these receivers. Um, is that especially in the outside that they can block and that's going to help the running game and kind of tying back to what we were talking about with Le'Veon Bell and with the receivers, this running back room, I'm curious. I mean, I think this is going to be the best rushing season the Jets have had in a while, just because I, I believe in the offensive line upgrades and in this offense, when you have good in this outside zone offense, when you have good receiver blocking and those receivers can seal the edge and you have fast running backs who can get up field, um, you're going to see production. And it, you saw in San Francisco that they didn't necessarily need to have a Le'Veon Bell um, or an Alvin Kamara or any of the top running backs in the league. I love how that was the only other running back, Derek Henry that I could think of. Um, as long as you have guys who are fast and can, you know, just make that one cut, get upfield, and you have the the blocking specifically at the tackle positions, especially if you have guards who can pull, if you have receivers who can get out and block, like we've been talking about, you're going to have production. It's just going to be a, a, a there's not going to be one guy, one workhorse. It's going to be running back by committee. Michael, I'm curious. I guess how far back do you have to go? And your prediction for this running back room, taking into account everything we just talked about, it's fairly inexperienced. There are some question marks there, but I'll go on a limb here and say. I think Ty Johnson was the best running back on the team last year. And the last two years, I mean, Le'Veon Bell's been getting reps who I guess looked good for his first two or three games. And then it seems like his legs kind of wore down and the Jets didn't get really anything out of him, but that was mostly bad offensive line play. And then next year, still not great offensive line play, but the Jets are running 40 year old Frank Gore, you know, halfback dive every play. Definitely running the ball was I kind of want to say it was an emphasis under Adam Gase, but it was something that they just did not do well. They were not able to keep themselves out of second and long uh, at all. And they were really predictable in when they were going to call runs and the types of runs they were going to, they were going to call. So I guess 
how, where would you rank the, your prediction for this rushing attack compared to past Jets teams? In other words, how far back do you have to go before you see a team, uh, a Jets team that you think would run the ball better than this upcoming team? Because in my eyes, I think that in this system with, with Becton and Elijah Vera Tucker and hell, even McGovern and Fan, who I think are good scheme fits, can, can hold the fort and the receiver blocking. And I really like Michael Carter. I think Ty Johnson's going to have a nice year. Tevin Coleman brings you something new as well. I feel like this is going to be the Jets, the best Jets rushing attack in a long time. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it all starts with the offensive line. I, th- I think this group in particular in the run game can be really solid. We'll, we'll see what happens at right guard. Um, but the other four guys, I think, all fit this scheme really well, especially George Fan. I think, is going to benefit from it. Um, Vera Tucker is a great fit in this scheme. So I think the run blocking, we'll see what happens in pass protection, can Beckton take the next step from good to great? Can McGovern turn around what he did last year? Can Fan improve? What will Vera Tucker do? Um, pass protection is more of a question mark for me, but run game, I feel pretty confident. They'll be right. at least an average run blocking offensive line, but the potential to maybe be top 10 because I think all these guys fit this offense, what they want to do really well. Um, all, all these guys are good athletes and that fits exactly what we want in a wide zone. So I think the offensive line is good and they have running backs who have home run ability to fit that Ty Johnson showed some of it last season. I agree with you. He's probably their best running back. Well, not probably. He was their best running back last season. Well, Josh Adams was comparable in the little that he played, but Johnson played a lot more. Um, Michael Carter brings home run ability and shiftiness. Um, and shiftiness, the ability of the elusiveness that they didn't have last year in that unit. Um, so I definitely think it all starts at the offensive line, but they have a committee wow, of guys com- who completely all... shaded Pirine there. That, Not that's kind of my guy. theme. I think anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that at this point. <laughs> I'm not a Pirine guy. What, not... what is the ceiling for Pirine in your eyes? I think the ceiling is probably for him to be a good just a good like kind of like what Bilal Powell was like a jack of all trades not quite amazing enough in any one thing to be a bell cow back but um, I think P Ryan can be a good pass blocker have good hands out of the backfield on check downs and be pretty good in power situations but uh, I just don't see the elusiveness or the home run ability also the vision I think it was pretty um Pretty bad last year, honestly. For do, do we blame that? Do we blame that pick on Gase? It does. It does seem like he's kind of picked for more of an inside zone offense. So I'm, I don't think he's a great fit in this scheme. But again, Michael Carter, Ty Johnson, also Tevin Coleman is has played in this offense and been explosive in it. Josh Adams, I think, if it were up to me, I would cut P Ryan and keep Josh Adams. I think Josh Adams is a good underrated running back who is. Uh, a great downhill runner who breaks a lot of tackles. Um, I, I would rather have him. Yeah, I think he's a good yeah. power role. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I think that's that's a good point that you're making. That I I, I really do believe that P Ryan's job is in jeopardy um, because, like you said, I think he was more drafted for the gay system, that inside zone versus an outside zone. And like you said, I think P Ryan's best chance to hold on to this roster, like when we talk about his ceiling, I think is to be the power back for this unit, to be the short yardage, the big bully guy, the, the guy you want to bring in when you want to play some smash mouth football. But if you're not breaking any tackles, you're not intimidating anybody. And like you said, Adams is a big back. He can bring that power. You can run him on the goal line, but his 
but he, you know, he brings speed. I mean, P Ryan does not have that breakaway speed. Now look, he was a rookie playing behind an awful offensive line under an uninspiring coach. So we'll see. But last year, yeah, he looked like the Jets version of Steven Ridley in 2015. That's what he looked like to me. And if you're going to be a big power back, you want to see more Chris Ivory, hell, Isaiah Crowell. You want to see somebody who can break tackles, who can run over people. Um, but it seems like, yeah, he. it, it kind of looked like the Jets were trying to draft a, a younger Frank Gore, yeah, but that's, a 40-year-old version say. of Frank he just, Gore. He just didn't. He, he looked like a copy of Frank Gore. There did, but not, but like we should clarify. Difference. But we should clarify. Not the prime San Francisco 49er Frank Gore. He looked like a carbon copy of the 40-year-old Frank Gore yeah. of basically just see hole, get hole, two yards, second and eight. Like that seems what Michael P. Ryan ceiling is to me. And I agree with you. I think Josh Adams is a lot better than he gets credit for. So that's an interesting training camp battle to watch. Um, and I could definitely see P Ryan being on the outs and being the first Joe Douglas uh, draft pick to not make the roster. And that, that draft class, you know, I, I like it. I think that there are some positives to it. Namely Beckton was the biggest one, especially if you could stay healthy, but there are a lot of question marks with that unit. And you wonder how much of that is the cohesiveness of, you know, draft Joe Douglas believes a lot in, in drafting players and adding players to fit a coach's scheme. And, you know, having that, that one vision and that draft class is going to be hopefully well, it definitely is the only draft class kind of built in Adam Gase's vision. So it wouldn't surprise me if that 2019 draft class isn't as good as, as these future draft classes. I mean, obviously the Jets have more capital and they're drafting under Robert Sala, but see picks like P. Ryan and LaMichael uh, and James Morgan. You know, I really like Becton. I think Bryce Hall is going to be good. And honestly, if you walk away with two starters like that, you can't hate the draft class. I really do like Denzel Mims though. So I still believe in him, but we got to see something from Jabari Zuniga. We'll see exactly what happens with Ashton Davis this year. If he's, you know, if Joyner uh, takes his starting spot. I mean, there's just some question marks with that 2019 draft class, but again, it's still too early. And, and, you know, compared to the the previous decade of Jets drafting, I still think it, it ranks among um, one of the better Jets draft class. Before we get into the mailbag, Michael, I want to ask you about one guy. And honestly, actually, you know, we can open up the mailbag because I think he's was going to be your answer for this, so we could talk about him a little bit. So going back to at Joey Shadel, after he asked the the worst case scenario for the Jets season, he went on a more positive note. Who wins the Curtis Martin Team MVP award and then the Bill Hampton Rookie Award? Starting with the MVP award, I asked you this beforehand, kind of just probing what you were going to say, and you mentioned C.J. Mosley, and yeah. I think he is a big part of of the optimism surrounding this team. He's obviously he's not the the biggest part, but in years past and in my experience as a Jets fan, a guy like CJ who was paid all this money and had all this, this hype behind him. And he puts together probably the best three quarters I've ever seen from a Jets linebacker. And then he hasn't played. I mean, he played a little bit in the Patriots game, but you know, injured all of 2019 for the most part ops out of 2020. It just is like, okay, this guy's making $20 million a year, 18 to be exact. Um, what are the chances that he comes back and he's still the same player he was? He was a four-time pro bowler in Baltimore. It just, to me, in my experience, it's like, all right, well, I don't want to count on that guy. Cause I don't know if we can, but I will say CJ is, I don't know if he opted out because of Gase or because it really was because of COVID, but he's found himself in a great situation playing under Robert Sala, which is probably a dream for a linebacker like CJ, a linebacker coach in Robert Sala, who was, is a defensive minded guy is a guy that players love to play for. It seems like CJ is re-energized, just kind of judging from social media. We'll see. And it looks like he's moving well. I mean, you can't read too much into OTAs, but those groin injuries, I mean, that, that's a pesky uh, and it moved into his core too. So it's just a pesky internal injury that, there's one of those that can just derail a, a career. I guess, how are you feeling about CJ just kind of watching him in OTAs? You can't take 
away too much, but it seems like he's, he's working his way back into that, that leadership role. It seems like he's moving well. It seems like maybe the two years off has given him enough time to recover from that core injury. Uh, what are your thoughts on Mosley and the potential impact he could have on this defense in 2021? Yeah, it definitely seems like he's, he's locked in mentally. Um, Cause you know, that's a concern you could have with a player who opts out of the season, misses the season before that, but it seems like he's totally locked in and, character was never a question for Mosley at all I mean it's one of the biggest pluses with him really um and it seems like he's still bringing that to the table um and I think he's going to be huge for this defense and coverage especially um he doesn't get a lot of love for it which doesn't make any sense because even if you do just scout box scores his passes defended and interceptions are very high for a linebacker um, but he, he's very good in coverage because he plays his role well and it's not pretty and it doesn't make highlights but just by sinking down a little bit to cover a crossing route or by getting through a rub to cover a running back out of the backfield, just taking options away to make the quarterback have to go to his next read. So then, you know, he gets sacked or he gets hit or whatever, just because an option's taking away or taken away. That's how he makes his impact. And it was a big part of the Ravens being successful while he was there. So, and he showed a lot of that in the very limited time he played with the jets in 2019. So he'll make a huge impact if he is, the same player and it's and just judging by what we've seen so far it seems like he's fully embracing that leadership role as a, as that every down mike linebacker so um and in terms of this question who the team mvp is going to be last year it was marcus may um i think it's definitely going to be a defensive player i don't see an offensive player quite yet getting to that point because if it's going to be an offensive player it has to be either your quarterback or a dominant skill player and I don't expect. Oh, hey, 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 don't, don't, don't count back them like that. I mean, it could be, but come on. Are they going to vote for an O lineman? Do you think that, do you think anyone would? I, I think I, this I, team is fully bought into their offensive line, but I agree. It's probably not going to be, but there's a chance Beckton could win. If Beckton is out there with 35 pancakes, I mean. It's just hard to vote them because you don't have like anything to go off of, but. But I, 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 I think it would. I think it's between Mosley, Carl Lawson, and Quinn Williams right. for this award. Um, and and I, I'm going to go with Mosley. I think he's going to stay healthy because he's been generally healthy in his career. Outside of the one injury in 2019, he was a durable guy. So you play a lot of games that helps you. That's I think why May beat out Quinnen last year. If Quinnen could have played three more games, while May played every game, I think Quinnen could have won it. But I think Mosley will stay durable. He'll make a lot of big plays, gain a lot of respect in the locker room. So I think he will be the team MVP. Yeah, I, I actually, before this, I had said Quinnen. And then when we were talking about CJ, I, I think I'll still say Quinnen, but I agree with you. If CJ has any type of, if he has the season that I think he may be able to have, I think he'll win it. Because I think people do forget that this guy's a four-time pro bowler. And like you said, I think, I don't agree that I don't think his coverage ability is elite because I think he lacks the necessary athleticism and speed to be considered an elite coverage linebacker, but his football IQ is so high that, yeah, he's He's definitely not a bad coverage linebacker. I mean, especially in this scheme where next to him, he's going to have a rookie. I mean, it could be Cashman, but presumably it's going to be either Sherwood or Nazel Dean. He's going to have these fast athletic pass coverage type linebackers, you know, converted safeties. CJ Mosley is not that, but when I think of the impact he could have, especially for those young guys playing next to him um, and the front seven as a whole, especially in run defense. And like you said, just making those critical 
um, plays around the sticks. I, I think CJ Mosley's impact on this team could be huge. I think he can be an extension of Sala on the field and helping to teach this. De- Although he's not you know, from this defense, I think that you, I think you're going to see the team look to CJ as a leader. I think he will be a captain on this team. Um, and if he can return to anywhere close to the level he was playing at in that first game, I think you're right. I think he wins that team MVP award because I think not only is he going to have a great season for himself, but the impact he's going to have is going to radiate throughout that entire defense. Definitely in the front seven, but even to the secondary. Uh, when you look at the Bill Hampton rookie award, um, I think I want to say uh, Elijah Moore, but then I'm thinking, well, if Elijah Moore is going to win it, then you'd kind of think that it would be Zach Wilson. So uh, I, I think, I, I don't know. I don't want to be a homer and just pick the rookie quarterback. You know, it, it seems like, um, Zach Wilson probably should be the favorite, but look, it's OTAs, but I think you can go off of, of scouting as well that Elijah Moore probably should not have been there in the second round. He looks like a real difference maker, potential difference maker for the Jets. We'll see what his role is. It is a bit of a crowded receiver room. So I'll say Zach Wilson, but I definitely think Moore has a, has a definite shot at this, uh, at this uh, award. What do you think for rookie year? Uh, I think I was going to go with the obvious pick of Elijah Moore. I'm kind of leaning towards Vera Tucker, maybe just because, I think there's a little more risk with the with the well, skills. Hold on, players. hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me wait, wait, wait. So an no. offensive lineman can't win MVP, but he can run rookie of the year. But listen, let me explain it. I think that there's just some more risk with skill. You mentioned receivers being probably the most injured position. So I'm looking at it in that perspective that yeah, they have a they have a quarterback too. That Elijah Moore doesn't stay healthy enough to compete for it. Bear Tucker starts all 16 games, plays respectably. The quarterback is just okay as a rookie and it could go to Vera Tucker I'm just looking at that potential lane for him to win it just to try and be different go with Elijah Moore right, as the I, guy. I, I get you're trying to be wrong. different I get you're trying to be different but if, if Vera Tucker wins that award unless he's a pro bowler that that means it wasn't a great season um for Zach Wilson I mean I I don't know I get what you're saying I, I think I I if I'm going to surmise what you're trying to say is that Zach Wilson's going to have a solid season. Elijah Moore is kind of in a crowded receiver room. I, I guess you're right. Injured. Wilson probably will get it unless he's really bad or one of these other guys is extremely good. So uh, maybe Wilson is going to be the guy just with an okay rookie season. For Matt T grizzle 12, are the jets waiting for the bears to cut fulls? Are they waiting for kickers cut to, or for, for cut kickers too? which teams have an abundance of proven kickers? Let's start with Foles, and then I'll, I'll turn to you for some kickers. I know that's your favorite position on the entire team. You love the special teams. Yep. Shout out to Thomas Hennessy, friend of the podcast. His um, birthday a few days ago. Oh, happy birthday, Thomas. Um, I think, yeah, I think Foles is probably the guy. I, yeah, there's, I don't, I, I think he'll probably get cut from Chicago. I don't think the Jets will trade a pick for him. I think the Jets are smart to just wait um, because they're giving reps to Morgan, who, you know, was drafted to be the number two guy. And granted, he hasn't played. He hasn't even played in preseason. I mean, the Jets are going to get a debut from from Zach Wilson, a debut from James Morgan. Has Mike White played at all? Like even yeah, in a pre- he played, he played in a preseason Cowboys. game. Okay, so it's not his debut. But the Jets are going to have two essentially rookie quarterback debuts. Um, so again, it's part of the reason why this pick is so brutal is not ready to be a backup yet. So unless James Morgan really develops into a great backup, they're definitely going to sign somebody. Um, and it, by all reports from OTAs, it seems like the backup quarterbacks don't look too pretty. I think it's between Foles and Mullins. Um, Mullins gives you the advantage of knowing the scheme, so you can sign him closer to training camp or maybe closer to the season because um, he can come in immediately. You could be confident in him to start. I think Foles is the better player than Mullins. You know, I, I think if the Jets 
sign Foles and Wilson goes down, I think you can still expect the Jets to be to win games. Whereas if they have Mullins, it's going to be more towards trying to be competitive and trying to see people develop. I mean, I'm not I'm not expecting that if the Jets are in a situation where they're anywhere close to a playoff run and Wilson goes down. We've seen it before with Foles. I, I still think the Jets could push through and make the playoffs with Foles. With Mullins, it's like, okay, well, season's probably over. This guy can just hold the fort. He's not going to be Luke Falk bad, but he's not going to, you know, win games for this team. It just depends. I think I think ultimately Foles is a Jet, um, but if not, it'll be Nick Mullins. I don't see a way that the Jets roll into the season with just um, James Morgan unless he really, really balls out in training camp. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I think that Mullins probably a guy to still look at. He had elbow surgery. Um, on his throwing arm after the season, which I'm pretty sure he's still out from and will will probably be back like right around when training camp starts. So maybe they want to be able to bring him in and actually get a look at him to throw. And that's why they haven't explored him yet. Um, So he could be on the radar. Foles is there. Um, I'd probably been on one of those two guys coming in at some point. Anybody else? As of right now, I don't think anyone really comes to mind, not off the top of my head, but those Josh two Johnson. do make sense. I mean, he could be on the radar, but if, if you're really taking this seriously, I think those are the two guys that you want to look at. Mullins has experience in this offense, played under with Michael Four for a few years, and he's really not that bad. He's not one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the league, but as a backup, I don't think he's terrible. I, I He's you can do worse than him, I think, for backups, and the same thing for Foles. So if you're taking backup quarterback seriously, I think these are the two guys that you probably want to be looking at. And then when you look towards kickers, what do you think the Jets' plan is there, Michael? Man, I wish the Jets had a plan here. It's been so long since they have, because we're seeing reports they had Chase now Myers. that they had him in the building, they had him in their grasp. And to be fair, if anyone remembers from three years ago, I was bashing that too, like going into the season with Jason Myers, who was terrible. And he was terrible the first few years of his career before he came to the Jets, but he walked into that good season. And I guess the Jets just kind of think that they'll strike gold again and find another Jason Myers, but it hasn't happened yet. Doesn't look like it will this year, but these two guys struggling in camp so far, Ficken and Chris Nagar. So um, they should just, I, I just don't understand why they don't put more effort into it. There are a lot of things that the Jets don't do that I feel like I understand more so than a lot of other than a lot of fans tend to like, you know, not spending every single dollar of your cap space to patch every single hole in your team. It's not mad and you can't just, you know, fix everything like that. So like, I understand their perspective. There's cap issues, there's scheme issues. There's, does the player not want to come here that I get, but kicker and the way they've handled it is the one thing over the past few years where I'm like, I just do not understand why you're not putting more effort into it, not even spending a seventh round draft pick on it. And even among the undrafted guys, there are better players who they could have gotten than, you know, Nagar in the past few years, there's been good undrafted guys. They haven't signed. So this is the one thing I'm, I'm getting pretty heated right now about this. This is the one thing with the jets that really makes ze- well, other than were, hiring Adam Gates, makes zero to, sense to me. Who um, were they supposed to go after? I think they should have drafted either Borogales or McPherson on day three. I think it's worth it to spend that draft pick. Well, maybe they weren't sold on them. I don't know what there isn't to be sold on. They make their field goals. Well, right, but the Jets didn't have a seventh. They had six-round picks, so it's like, you know, maybe they liked, you know, uh, 
I, I don't know. I, if they're not completely head Maybe over heels, not a scheme fit. It, it's probably a scheme <laughs> fit. I just don't think you just, you don't just take a kicker to take a kicker. You're only taking them. But you're not with taking a draft them to pick. take them. They're taking good kickers who I make know, but you, their field goals no, at a high it. level. But if you and are in the love kickers with they the have, kicker, don't make their field goals. There's just not a lot of complexity. I just position. think there's plenty of undrafted free agent kickers that come in and play well. So it's like, unless you really love a guy, I, I'm not spending a draft. I, I'm not against spending a draft kick on a kicker. Let me get that clear. But I'm not filling a need with, with the, I'm not using a draft kick to fill draft pick to fill a need at kicker just because I have one. It's like, I'm only taking a kicker with a pick. If I like him a lot, maybe they didn't really like him a lot because there's plenty of undrafted free agents that come in every year. It, they're guaranteed. You'll be there few this year. That'll come in, win jobs and be good care and be solid kickers. Maybe the jets have one in their hands. Maybe Ficken can, can bounce back. Um, but I agree again, like last year, I guess, keep an eye out on the, on the kicker waiver wire. See if anybody shakes free at the end of training camp um, from at the fake Matt gold in regards to crowd. Just how one you guys- more thing on the kickers wow, before we move yeah. on. But like, if you're going to sign an undrafted guy, sign one who's good. Chris Nagar missed three extra points last year at college distance. That's like 20 yards. And he didn't make any field goals from 50-plus. Maybe they like his potential. Is, and he also didn't even kick until his final season in college. So just I wonder, put I wonder, more effort That's into a it. great point. I wonder if they had like a private workout with him and they really liked it. Didn't he have a video of him nailing like a 65 yarder or something? I'm pretty sure every, that's kind of like practice threes in basketball. It's like every player can hit threes in practice. I bet Dwight Howard can make over half his threes in practice. Doesn't mean you can do it in the game. I guess I, every single kicker can make those practice shots. Put effort into so kicking. It seems like thicken again. I'm putting my foot down. Seems like it's probably thicken again. We're going to oh. march on Florham Park. Anything Demanding <laughs> they sign a good kicker. Anything's better than Corey Vedvik. From at the fake Matt Gold, in regards to Crowder, how do you guys weigh that JD and Crowder share the same agency? Say CAA, do you think JD is setting a precedent for future CAA clients that he won't blindly do what they ask? Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't. I think JD has already set that precedent from day one that he's not a GM that's going to fold easily, that he has his number and he's going to walk away from it. Um, he'll walk away from the table if you're not willing to meet it. I, I wouldn't read too much in the fact that they're represented by the same agency. Uh, I do think just from the sounds of the fact that Sala was so open and talking about the, the situation with Crowder and that he expects him to be here. It sounds like things are amicable and that they'll be able to work something out. I mean, it makes a lot of sense from the Jets perspective because you can recognize that Crowder is a really good player and easily was the best Jets player, the Jets, the easily the, the best Jets receiver last year. Um, and uh, I guess I would, I was going to say arguably the most proven this year, but I'd still probably put Corey Davis above him. He's a really good player though. He's a really, really good player. And, and among the best slot receivers, but you can still recognize that he's overpaid. Um, and if the Jets cut him, he's not going to sign anywhere else and make close to what he's going to make with the Jets, even with the restructure. So I think the Jets can restructure him, knock off two, three, four million, and still be paying him what he's worth and still be paying him probably slightly above market value for slot receivers. Um, so that's kind of my, my view on it. I do think the Jets ultimately get something done. Maybe they push some of the money um, and lay it out over two years, or maybe they just knock it down. I mean, I'm not necessarily exactly sure the way they'll try to structure it, but I definitely don't think that he um, that he's on this roster with his current salary. Michael, what about you? Yeah, I agree. In, in terms of this question with the agency, I, I think it's an interesting point to keep in mind, but more so than the agency, I think it's just um, Douglas has shown us from the start that he's this kind of GM who is not going to cave or overpay to players so I think this is just in line with that um but I I agree with you on Crowder I would 
try to keep him around. You want as much depth as you can get at wide receiver as possible. I don't see the point of cutting him. Um, the thing that they should do is just try to find that middle ground. You know, I would say start at 5 million. If he thinks he can, you know, go in the open market and do better than that, then pump the number up a little bit. See if he'll do six or seven and just try and find that midpoint where you could knock off as much as you can, but still keep him around at a number that he'll take. Because I think he has a lot of value to this team this year. You have a rookie quarterback. This is, you have a lot of inexperienced receivers and this in this position group too, as much as we like Elijah Moore, he's a rookie. Denzel Mims played, I believe nine games last year and he's only going into his second season. Um, Corey Davis and Keelan Cole, new to the team, new to this offense. So there's a lot of variables here and you want as much depth as you can get as possible. Uh, and I think Crowder, even though 10 million is definitely too much after drafting Elijah Moore, his role is going to be diminished and you do want to knock that down. I just would try to avoid getting to the point where we're cutting or trading him. Cause I think he can provide a lot to this team uh, but just with, with having the depth and security. Kind of going off the point you just made about like the type of GM Joe Douglas is and going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, where it's like heading into this off season, we didn't really know who Joe Douglas was as a GM. We knew that he had his price point, um, that he was a little bit more on the conservative side when it came to free agents, that he valued the draft picks, that he was good at trades, just looking at the Jamal Adams and the Leonard Williams deals, um, or at least getting good value um, at the time of the trades. Um, so we knew a little bit about Douglas, but I will say I really like the GM that, Joe Douglas showed himself to be this off season. And, and we'll see if that's a trend that continues. But one of the things where you play that game of being too firm on a price point is you end up with situations like what happened with Robbie Anderson, who granted actually wouldn't be a great fit in this offense. So maybe it was for the best. Um, and I like that Douglas at the mid season point took ownership and said that he, he did, you know, he didn't necessarily handle that situation amazingly the fact that he let Robbie Anderson walk and go sign in Carolina for a deal that really wasn't that, you know, exorbitant, you know, we were talking about, well, you let Robbie walk if he's going to make 12, 13, $14 million, but he ended up signing Carolina for what was it again? It was 10. And then they signed Perriman for 8 million or something like that. Um, yeah. It was something, it was, it was a difference of one or $2 million it may have been less than that. It might've been six and eight. I, I forget exact the exact numbers, but that's the game you play and you want a GM who can walk that line really firmly of, of not overpaying free agents. Um, but still knowing when there's a guy that you really want and you got to get him. that sometimes you have to give him a little extra cheese, especially when you're in a situation like the jets were in this, uh, this off season where it's like, Hey, we're coming off a two and 14 season. Not everybody wants to sign here. Um, I think he, he navigated that perfectly. He wasn't too conservative. We were really fearful, especially after the first few hours of, of free agency. I know everybody overreacted because the Jets didn't get Tooney and they, you know, they didn't necessarily um, come out of the gates flying. But the fact that he still, the fact that he, he went and got Carl Lawson, he paid him what he was worth. He went and got um, Corey Davis. He paid him what he was worth. He, and obviously he values his draft picks, but he recognized the value of Elijah Vera Tucker and trading, trading up for him. So Joe Douglas, what we learned about him is obviously he's a conservative and a measure, a really, really, really measured GM, but he can be aggressive. And that's kind of what you want. You want that balance of aggressiveness um, and conservativeness. And I, and I really like, I just think that's an important point to mention kind of when you're talking about, we know who he is. He has his line in the sand. Um, just, uh, you know, just a brief side note on, on Douglas and, and kind of what we've observed from him this off season. Uh, and then kind of continuing off this point, 
Question from at M Epstein, 10, 12. Moore hasn't even played a preseason game and Crowder was our best weapon last year. Why do fans complain about depth? Yet, as soon as somebody gets hurt, they want to cut someone. What happens if Moore gets hurt? We still need Crowder. I agree with that hundred percent. I, I definitely agree. And I also think it's important to note that Elijah Moore and, and Jameson Crowder are two very different types of slot receivers. Elijah Moore is a guy, I mean, Jameson Crowder is a veteran, safe, um, you know, he's a safety blanket for a quarterback. He can go over the middle, get his yards. Uh, you can count on him, especially the last few years, to get 100 receptions. This year, I don't know if he will, just because there's more weapons. Elijah Moore is an explosive, dynamic playmaker. He's not, Jameson Crowder is not the, the deep threat that Elijah Moore is. He's not necessarily the threat to take a wide receiver screen 70 yards, although he did do that week one against Buffalo. He can do it. Um, but Elijah Moore is definitely the more explosive of the two, where Jameson Crowder is probably the more reliable of the two. Um, Michael, I guess just your thoughts to finish up the, the Crowder topic on, on cutting him and restructuring him and kind of the role you see for him in this offseason. Because I think it's important to note that the Jets, with Corey Davis out and with Denzel Mims working with the second team and battling injuries or whatnot, the Jets have been playing Keelan Cole as the number one receiver. They've been playing Elijah Moore outside, which I think is versatility that Crowder doesn't have. I think it, I think you'll see more start his career in the slot, but he could evolve into a guy like a Tyree Kill or a Tyler Lockett who can play both, who can play on the outside, which is what he's doing right now in OTAs. And you're seeing Braxton Berrios come in and have a great OTA session. Granted, you don't, you don't, you don't want to read too much into it, but the fact that the Jets are having success with essentially two slot receivers shows that I think they're going to have an offense that it's going to work a lot with Crowder and more on the field at the same time. I think you're going to see a lot of more coming in motion on jet sweeps and Crowder coming across the formation. And I think you're just going to see LaFleur build an offense around um, these two slot receivers, because I think they're, they're two really valuable weapons. And although they technically play the same position, they're in fact, very different. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a really good point that you make. These guys are not, this, they're, they're, pretty much opposite players they offer very different things even though they're both smaller guys who primarily line up in the slot they're, they're very different like you said Crowder is not a jet sweep threat Elijah Moore is he's not Crowder isn't really a screen threat Elijah Moore is and a lot of Elijah Moore's damage was deep last year he averaged over 100 yards per game on passes over 10 yards downfield which is obviously ridiculous and Crowder does most of his damage on underneath throws, you know, whip routes, jerk routes, those little short third routes, um, third down to slants over the middle, just catching passes in the flat, all things that he's very good at, um, which isn't really the bread and butter of Elijah Moore's game. Not that Moore can't do those things, but you draft Elijah Moore uh, at the 34th pick, despite not having a huge wide receiver hole because you think he can be an explosive threat. That's why you draft him. And that's not what Crowder is. He can be that safety blanket that can help a rookie quarterback. So they offer extremely different things. And I think that's a key point here. If they were less, uh, if they, if they were more similar than they are, if Crowder was that same type of player, maybe crowd say Crowder was that type of player and he's aging and he isn't as dynamic of a threat and you just want to get younger in that role then maybe it makes sense but that's not the case here we're talking about two guys who essentially play the same position but play it in a very different way and bring very different things to the table if you cut Jameson Crowder I'm not sure you have another receiver who really offers the things that he does you hope Braxton Berrios could do that but Berrios has been pretty drop prone throughout his first two seasons of his career. And Crowder's hands last year were very good. I believe he only had two drops last season. I think Barrios had three drops with significantly fewer receptions. 
Uh, so you hope Barrios can be that, but he hasn't quite been as good as Crowder throughout the past two years. So if, if you caught Crowder, I think you really lose that safety blanket. Uh, very solid underneath route runner. From at Bulls56 underscore Mike, what's your price point on Moses? Of course, referring to Morgan Moses, the right tackle that was cut from Washington, who has experience in an inside zone offense, not necessarily an outside zone, but he at least is a zone offensive lineman. The Jets have a huge need at right guard. You can argue they also have a need at right tackle. Fant is solid. We don't even know if he's good, um, but he has a t- he could be anywhere from bad to good, but right now I guess you say he's an average right tackle. There's also the injury concerns with Mekhi Becton that you know he has battled to stay healthy, whether that's the size and now that he has the plantar fasciitis injury. You could see a situation where Fant is going to have to slide over to left tackle for a few games this year, and then who's going to play right tackle. So it could be smart to add a guy like Moses. Michael, you and I were talking about, and you wrote it in your article, and Joe Blewett, um, film expert at Jets X-Factor, agreed that the Jets could sign Moses and they could plug him in at right guard. Some people have been talking about signing Moses at right tackle and trying to slide Fant over. We both agree uh, that that's a bad idea. One, Fant doesn't really have the anchor to be a guard. Remember, this is a guy that was a tight end and a college basketball star. Um, you're signing this guy fan is actually a really good fit in this offense. The fact that he has the athleticism to get outside and seal the edge wouldn't be as good a fit in a guard. And we'll still see if fan is even good. It's just on paper. He's a good physical fit for it. Moses, however, seems like he could, he could work well here at, at guard, I guess, kind of your thought on Morgan Moses's fit with this team, whether it's at guard or tackle, and then kind of your price point, if you're Joe Douglas, what you are offering Moses. And do you think that maybe would co- correspond with the move of, like we were talking about earlier, maybe cutting a Jamison Crowder, or at least restructuring him or making another move. Just kind of your thoughts on the whole Morgan Moses situation. Yeah, I think I, I watched a little bit of him. I'm not going to claim to be a Morgan Moses expert, but I did watch a few games of him to try to get a, a good summary of his strengths and weaknesses. And I do think he can fit well at right guard on this team. I think you can sign him with the idea of, with the idea of filling that last hole at right guard and keeping fan right tackle to complete your five man unit on the offensive line. Um, Moses is much more of a power player than he is an athlete. To me, he didn't have great combine numbers back in 2014 when he was drafted um, actually had pretty bad athleticism numbers in terms of 40, um, the agil- agility drills, things like that. And he was 20 pounds lighter at that point, And now he's in his thirties. Uh, and you can see that on tape, his best moments are, when he's blocking down, when he's working to the inside. Um, Those are the things where he's at his best, more so than getting in space, working to the second level. Um, And Fan is the opposite. Fan is pretty good getting out in space. He was essentially playing tight end for the Seahawks for a few years. Um, And he played college basketball. And and you see it on his tape. Especially the game he played against the Cardinals at left tackle, he had a lot of really good moments get getting out on the edge and outside zone. So I'm excited to see what he could do with uh, playing outside zone more full-time because the Jets didn't run a ton of that last year. They're mostly an inside zone offense, um, which is what Moses comes from in Washington. But I think Fant is the type of guy you want on at tackle in this run scheme. And Moses isn't quite that, but I think he can play guard effectively because he's a bigger stronger guy is good on on the interior working against the bigger because those were his best moments like pinning defensive tackles inside more so than working out against edge rushers Uh, and even in pass protection he holds up well against power moves but not really against uh, outside moves around the edge and fan again is the opposite power moves he really struggles with bull rushes long arms 
clubs, things like that, moves to the inside. Fan had big problems with. So if he's struggling with that against edge rushers, I don't think he's going to be able to do that at guard against defensive tackles. And But he does a good job against speed. Moves around the corner. He handles pretty well using that athleticism. So the idea of Moses at right guard and Fan right tackle really intrigues me. So in terms of pursuing him, I, I think a one-year deal, seven, eight million is what I would go for. Yeah. I think that makes sense for him. That's a respectable number for what he's achieved, where he's at in the league, and sets him up to cash in free agency next year. He'll only be 31, which is young enough to probably go for another big multi-year deal. Um, and that number also kind of puts the Jets out of range of teams like the Bears, who could also pursue him but don't have nearly as much cap space. I believe the Bears have $6 million in cap space right now. It's a single-digit number, but they're way behind the Jets who are in the 20s, so... Uh, one year, seven, eight million is probably where I would go for him with the idea of playing him at right guard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard because, you know, 30 minutes ago and you, on this podcast, you were saying the goal for this team isn't to win the playoffs or to go to the playoffs. Um, and, you know, clearly this move, signing a 30-year-old offensive tackle, um, when it's not necessarily, especially tackle, it's not necessarily a huge need. Um, well, it supplements the quarterback. Well, I, you, I you didn't let me here. finish the point. You, okay, okay. Yeah, you, Thank you. Um, so on the surface, signing a guy like Moses, who's 30 years old, doesn't really make much sense for the Jets. But because the Jets have a rookie quarterback and we've seen what happened with Sam Darnold and not getting the protection, and you don't want Zach Wilson to develop these scars of, of being afraid in the pocket. And you saw Zach Wilson flourish last year with an amazing uh, offensive line in front of him at BYU. I think it's worth it. I think it is worth it, even if it's just for the year. I think the big X factor is if he's comfortable and if he wants to play guard, there's, there's a question that, you know, maybe he doesn't want to play guard. He can sign with a bunch of other teams and play tackle. You make more money as a tackle. Um, So that's, that's a big question mark. If he doesn't want to play guard, I don't know if I would do it. I think I would do it. Maybe if it was, um, you know, fans money's already guaranteed. So you're not getting out of that. I don't think that Moses is is a tremendous fit at tackle in the system. I agree with you. I think he's would be a good fit at guard. I do think that you bring him in as a guard and then the value that you have is also if Becton goes down, who we know has injury concerns, you could slide fan over to the left side where he actually wants to be. And then Moses can play tackle in that situation. Uh, I think the Jets can outbid anybody. I agree with you. I think I'd go up to 8 million for him, um, but he'd have to understand that he's signing here to play guard. He may end up playing tackle. Um, he may show that versatility, but if he's comfortable in a situation where it's like, okay, I get to show that I can play guard as well. I've shown in Washington that I can play tackle. I'll, probably end up playing tackle just based off Becton's injury history. Um, then you do that deal. Um, I get on the surface adding a 30 year old tack, a guy to, at a position that's not necessarily of need doesn't make too much sense, but the depth you get from it, the, the level of comfort you can build around your rookie quarterback. I, I think it's worth it. Um, was that a good enough answer for you, Michael? Yeah, I think you summed it up. I mean, I think I did in, in much fewer words, but no, you, right. you, you made a good point. You, I think just... Your answer was way longer than mine. What are you talking about? No, I, when I addressed the quarterback part of it, I think it was shorter. No, you, you had a great answer. You had a great at, answer. At Gavin underscore football one, realistic stat line for Quinn Williams for the upcoming season. What do you think, Michael? I feel like Williams is going to benefit from the improved edge help. Uh, Carl Lawson and Finney Curry, I think Curry is going to set up a good number of sacks. Curry's never been a sack guy himself. Uh, he only had three last year, five the year before that, but what he does really well is he's a great bull rusher. He really squeezes the pocket 
and creates the type of pressure that forces the quarterback to step up. Lawson is, he's going to help too, but Lawson, his, a lot of his pressures are to the inside, which would more prompt the quarterback to scramble out towards the edge. So I'm just saying, look at Vinnie Curry too, as a guy who could help in terms of creating sacks for the interior. Lawson's going to help a ton, but Curry, his bull rushing is perfectly designed for creating those sacks. Just look at the Eagles interior D lineman uh, that he played with the past few years, Fletcher Cox, Malik Jackson. Um, those guys picked up a lot of sacks, largely thanks to guys like Brandon Graham and Vinnie Curry on the edge, uh, creating that pressure. So um, I think Quinn and Williams will see an uptick in sacks this year a little bit. I think he'll hit the 10 mark this year. I think he will yeah. get those 10 sacks. Um, but also his run defense numbers are great. He had 10 tackles for loss this year. Uh, his run stops, I think he had 22, but uh, he led interior defensive linemen in run stops per game with about over two per game. I think he'll maintain that. And then the pressures too. I think the pressures will be up for Quinnen this year. He started pretty slow in that area, but down the stretch of the season, he was having games with seven pressures, six pressures, uh, pretty much week after week against the Raiders, Chargers, and Dolphins. Um, so I could see him uh, creeping into the top 10 in pressures as well. So uh, I think he'll have another season with 10 tackles for loss, 10 sacks, and then probably being top 10 in both pressures and run stops. And this is incredible stuff. And it doesn't feel unrealistic to say because he pretty much did most of these things last year. And especially in the, the latter portion of the year, he was creeping up to an even more elite level to where he's doing stuff that only guys like Aaron Donald and Grady Jarrett, some of the best guys in the league were doing. So it doesn't feel ridiculous to say Quinnen will put up some of these great numbers. Yeah. Outside of, of Zach Wilson, I would say the defensive line is the thing I'm most excited to watch for this team. I mean, there's a lot of things to be excited about with this team. Um, but I think this defensive line is going to be really damn good. And I think they're going to mask a lot of the weaknesses of the secondary because clearly the Robert Sala approaches if you can have a strong four up front who can get pressure um, and can get after the quarterback and force the ball out of the hands, um, you can sit back in zone coverage uh, and not take too much damage. I think ultimately this defense, because of their weaknesses at corner, and I actually think Bryce Hall will prove himself to be a respectable starting outside corner, um, especially in the system. I just think the system lends itself um, two corners, especially corners of his skill set. So I think Bryce Hall actually will be a long-term starter for the Jets. He may not be the number one, but I think he could be a viable number two. I think the problems for this unit will come opposite him. And then, you know, I, I like Michael Carter the second in the slot, but it may take him a season to kind of get his wings under him. But I think that number two corner spot um, is going to be an issue for the Jets. Um, but a great defensive line can mask a lot of that, especially um, – just the style of, of, of zone that Robert Saul plays. It just takes a lot of the pressure off of them. They're not in a lot of man to man situations. Uh, and this defensive line, I, I have to say, and I can't decide when I was looking at this question, kind of what you were saying, I can't decide if Quinn Williams is going to benefit from the influx of talent at this spot, because I already thought it was probably the Jets strongest position just between Florenzo Fadakasi, John Franklin Myers and himself. But then when you add Sheldon Rankins, then when you add um, Carl Lawson and Vinnie Curry, I can't decide if Quinnen's going to benefit more from those guys or everybody else is going to benefit from Quinnen Williams. And I think we kind of talked about it beforehand, how sacks are actually more of a team stat than it's given credit for. Um, Cause you've gone in and you're, you have a whole campaign against the, the importance of sacks. Um, yeah. But Carl Lawson's a great example of a guy who last year was an elite edge rusher and only had five sacks. And the part of that was because he just didn't have any other help in Cincinnati. So 
whether that be on the defensive line or whether that be in the secondary. So either he's getting double teamed or his teammates aren't getting after it. And even if he wins his rep, the quarterback still can either slide out of the way or just have enough time to, to uh, find a wide open receiver. But because this system lends itself to not having elite quarterbacks or cornerbacks, and I love what's around Quinnen between Carl Austin and between you can put Sheldon Rankins uh, or John Franklin Myers inside of the defensive tackle spot. I think they're both uh, very good pass rushing defensive tackles. You can flex John Franklin Myers outside to that defensive end spot. I like Vinny Curry. Hell, you even got young guys like Bryce Huff. Um, I think this defensive line as a whole is going to be in the top 10 um, when it comes to sacks. Um, when it comes to individual numbers, though, I'm not sure. I think it's going to be a lot more spread out. So I think, I think Quinnen can hit 10, and I think Carl Lawson will hit around there as well. Um, but I think you're going to see guys like, you know, John Franklin Myers having five sacks and Vinnie Curry having four sacks and Shelly Rankins having seven sacks. I think it's just going to be, or six sacks, you know, something like that. I think it's going to be more spread out uh, between them all. And they all have their individual strengths. And that's not even acknowledging Fado Kasi, who's arguably one of the best run-stuffing nose tackles in the league. He might not be a, a tremendous fit in this offense, but you, or in this defense, but you can still have – you could still play him at a, a zero tech or a one tech as a four, three defensive tackle on running down. So I really, really like this defensive line. Um, and I think, uh, and I think Quinn Williams is really going to be benefiting um, off of, of the additions and obviously Carl Lawson will as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit about Carl Lawson and the sacks a little bit. So I do think Lawson is going to have an uptick in sacks this year. Last season, he had the highest, just as, um, an indicator of how little help he had. He had the highest percentage of his team's quarterback hits in the entire league. He had the second most quarterback hits. He had 32. Only TJ Watt had more. And the Bengals were thir- or 27th in quarterback hits. So Lawson had the highest portion of his team's hits in the league. So essentially he was no player in the league was a bigger part of their team's pass rush than he was. So he had no help. And when you watch his film and you see the plays he was making, there just aren't any plays you look at where it's like he should have gotten that sack. He whiffed on that sack sort of like Leonard Williams was Leonard Williams's lack of sacks was on him. He was a great player, elite run defender and a great producer of pressure as well. And that does matter. It does have impact, but his lack of sacks you could put on him because there were blatant examples of him just not finishing sacks, just whiffing on the ability, whiffing on opportunities to finish them. Carl Lawson, I don't think, has had that throughout his career, even though it goes beyond just this past season. He had five the year before he had one in 2018. It just doesn't seem like it was his fault. It seems like he's mostly just not getting those opportunities from players around him. So I do think with playing with Quinn and JFM Rankins, even fully, he's going to get more sacks this year, but I do think it is important to not just look at that. If he has another season, just like last year, where he has the fourth most pressures in the league among edge rushers, because that's where he was last year, fourth most pressures among edge guys with 64, but he only puts up five and a half sacks. I wouldn't complain about it that much, as long as his lack of sacks isn't an individual issue. If he has a lack of sacks because he's botching opportunities to get them, he's missing tackles, then yeah, you can get on him for the lack of sacks. That's something he would have to get better at because you don't want to miss those opportunities. But if he has another season where he doesn't put up sacks and you watch the film and it's like, you know, he's just destroying people and he's unlucky the ball's coming out early, then it's just hard to get on him. So I think sacks are really team stat. It's a product of stuff like good coverage, 
Um, a lot of sacks are cleanup sacks in which one guy creates pressure that someone who actually didn't beat his man, just the quarterback runs right into him. That Trey Hendrickson got a lot of those last season. He had 14 sacks, I think, but there are sacks where like Cameron Jordan would destroy his man, make Tom Brady scramble. Trey Hendrickson got destroyed. He got sent up the arc and Brady just walks right into him. And Hendrickson gets a sack. Uh, What a downgrade that is for Cincinnati. Right. I definitely think that's an upgrade. Hendrickson is good. I don't think that should be gotten wrong. He did have good pressure numbers. But but Carl Lawson's Lawson's younger and better. better. He's a much better athlete. He's a much better producer of pressure. I think... I Much think this, better all-around player. I think this this defense is going to be a lot better than people are expecting. I think they may be more bend but don't break. You know, I think they may be susceptible to the big play. Although I, I think they have good safeties, so over the top, I'm not too worried. I just think that they're going to give up some passing yards for sure. But especially with CJ Mosley in the middle, I think the run defense is going to be very solid um, with talent up front. Uh, and I just love them in short yardage situations. And I think that yeah, I think they're going to get a lot of pressures. Um, I think Carl Lawson's going to have a breakout year. I'm I'm a big fan of this defensive line and, and what Saul is implementing. I still have questions at that second cornerback spot. I still have questions at the linebacker spot for sure, but the defense as a whole is rush four. And if your four is good enough, they're going to get pressure on the quarterback. And if the quarterback can get it out, everybody else is in zone coverage. So you're not taking, um, you know, too many hits, you know, so you're not man, man coverage and you're giving up 60 yard plays. The jets may get picked apart a little bit, but I think in those short yardage situations, especially with how strong they are up front, you're going to see this defense uh, shine. So I'm really excited to watch uh, the dynamic of, of Quinn and Carl and how they play off of each other. All right, three more here. Let's fly through these at Joe RB 31 strongest player on the jets per square inch. Michael, I, you tweeted at him with Braden man. Is that yeah. your final answer? Well, I, I felt like this was, you know, something that would be universally known just by asking the question. It's like, you know, if you ask, um, like what the most successful baseball franchise is in history, it's the Yankees. So you go, we're going to debate who the second most successful franchise is. That's sort of right. what this question is. It's right, universally sense. known. Brady man is the strongest man pound for pound in the world. Everyone knows that your grandma knows that your newborn child knows that it's accepted. So we're going to talk about the second most strongest, second strongest player on this roster. Pound well, for per pound. square. Yeah. Yeah. Pound per for square pound. It's, it's, it's a big way. thing. Cause just strongest player. It's either Becton or Fadakasi, probably maybe Nathan Shepard's in there as well. It's one of those guys, but per square inch. I mean, I think Carl Lawson has a good case, but when you're talking about per square inch, you're talking about, I mean, the guy that was always brought up as like in the, in the CBS broadcast is who he's the pound for pound strongest guy on this team is always like Buster screen. So I, I'm looking towards like DBs. I'm trying to think, do we have like a scrappy defensive? I mean, like, I guess Ashton, I don't know if I would, I don't think Ashton Davis is the strongest guy pound for pound. I really don't know. That's a good question because I, I, Carl Lawson, it would probably be my answer, but I kind of want to find somebody who's maybe Wesco. Wesco's a big dude though. Yeah. He's a good answer, but he is pretty big. He's a big Um, guy. I'm scanning the roster. I'm trying to kind of find the guy here. Maybe Davis. Such a good answer. This came to mind. No, 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 um, but maybe maybe Corey did. You could look at the receivers. Oh, or Corey, the receiver I was blocking. thinking Ashton Davis could be a good pick here. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't think – I think eh, – you know, I might, I might go Mims. Corey Davis. I think Mims and Corey Davis are pretty good. Braxton Barrios, maybe. He's pretty jacked, and he's a very small guy. Yeah, but it's not just – it's not just – yeah, it's not physique. It's 
strength. I mean, you're talking about guys who just don't get bullied, who are scrappy and they He's fight for everything. Strong, I think Mims is actually kind of an underrated answer because when you first said it, I shrugged it off just because he's kind of a he's a lanky dude like myself. But when you think about it, he's he's scrappy. I mean, he does his his go-to trade is his last minute separation and his physicalness. I might go Mims. I might go Mims actually. And I look think at some of his blocks. Look at the and his blocks yeah. on those. Pound for pound, I'll take Denzel Mims. Corey Davis is a close second. Corey Davis is up there too. This isn't the strongest guy, but you're talking about per square inch. It has to be Mims because there's no other guy that has that output with that type of body. I mean, he's a lanky dude, but he's so physical. So I'll go. I'll go with Mims. Maybe Bless Austin. He hits pretty uh, hard. Yeah, that's true. Bless Austin is pretty scrappy as well. I mean, he whiffs on a lot of tackles, but when he connects, like the one out of 15 times he connects, yep, <laughs> guy goes flying. Yeah. So maybe uh, Bless is only 198. So that could be a good answer. Mims is 207. So I think those are two good answers. I would throw Ration Davis in there. Um, but obviously, Braden Man on the entire roster is the guy. You know what? I know you're like, um, I know you're trying to be funny, but man, it's actually not is funny. Att- it is a good, a legit answer. I, actually, I was going to say like, cause I was, you're, what well, you're talking about your grandma knows and everything. And I was like, all right, all right, enough of this <laughs> gag. But when I do think about it, the amount of big hits that Braden man had last year, he kind of does have to be considered. So he's actually 198. So he is pretty, he's not as small as you would think right. he is. What is Denzel Mims way? 207. Oh, so maybe, maybe, maybe man has him there. I don't know. I guess, yeah, Mims is 6'3", but he's two. So his frame is a lot smaller, though, because he's a lanky guy. Yeah. Uh, all right, two more questions. I, we probably should have put that at the end because we actually have two somewhat serious questions. Um, from at Jets Forever 123, can you give a realistic perspective on why Marcus May might be better than Jamal Adams? He isn't. Okay, next question. At D, uh, Like, the way I view it is, I think... I, I guess, like, for... I mean, I mean, you can go after me. You've been going first every single time. I I'm asked you. First. Oh, my God, you... I was giving you time to think about these because you're not even on the document. Yes, I am. Oh, you're not. You're not popping up in the Google Doc. It says there. page unresponsive, but I was. I was just here. Yeah. Okay, so Marcus May is not better than Jamal Adams, but I do think there is a case that he was better than him this past season because Jamal Adams had a very bad season in coverage. He was toasted. The, the Seahawks put him in the slot a lot more than the Jets did, and that role was not a good fit for him. And he got toasted quite frequently, and he was not good in coverage this past season. But before last year, Jamal Adams was the best safety in the league. And one of the best was having his last two seasons with the Jets, 2019, 2018, were some of the best all around seasons from safeties we've seen probably in that decade. Just with what he was doing all around, dominating as a pass rusher and blitzer to an extent we haven't seen from any other safety. He was elite in coverage and a lot of people now that Adams isn't on the Jets like to debate that he was great in coverage he manned up against tight ends he was great in zone he was excellent and his run defense is obviously it pretty much goes without saying he's great in that area too so May has not come close to what Jamal Adams did those two seasons but May was elite this past season he was very good and Jamal Adams was still I would say good but his coverage was an issue this past season. So I would say May had a better season this uh, in 2020, but Adams is definitely a more talented player all around. Yeah. And also Marcus May is three years older. I mean, I guess Jamal Adams turns 26 in October. So that's, that's two years, but two and a half years. Um, 
I think May is a very, very good player, but I think we've, this is, this is who we, I, I mean, I think the last year that you just saw, that's probably um, the peak you're going to get from Marcus May. I'm not saying that he's going to go down or anything, but I think we just, we know who Marcus May is. And I still feel like there is some roof for room for growth from Jamal Adams. Um, I think right now Jamal Adams is the better player than Marcus May, but I still think that, um, that you could see an even better version of Jamal Adams just because he's still only 25. I mean, I still, he has a longer prime than Marcus May. Part of that was because May was just such an old rookie. That actually is the only reason why. Um, But I feel that May is probably stronger in coverage. He's probably the better free safety um, can roam over the, you know, play that deep third and and can break up those plays and get interceptions like the, you know, the amazing one we saw um, in Miami or against Seattle. That's not really Jamal Adams's game, but as far as, who would you rather have on your team? If you're doing a draft, you're taking Jamal Adams every day, but, and I, and I think it's important. Like, I really don't like Jamal Adams. He's probably my least favorite player in the entire league, just because of his, you know, his old act and the way he, you know, forces way out of here and everything as a fan, you're not supposed to like that. Um, but he is a hell of a player. And I do think that he had a bad season last year in comparison to what everybody was expecting, but it was still a very good season. He still broke the DB record for sacks. And I think he was injured for a lot of it too. So I think you're going to see it. I think Jamal Adams is, is one of the, the league's elite safeties, but I think Marcus may cannot be discounted because I think may is right behind him. I think may is a very, very good safety and we'll see how he is in the system. So maybe I'm wrong in the fact that I think you're not going to see much more growth from May. I think um, maybe you could grow even more in the system, but I just think that Jamal Adams has that X factor, that elite, you know, can be the best safety in the league where I think as Marcus may is a very, very good player can maybe be a top five safety, but I don't think he's ever going to be considered the best safety in the league. He just doesn't bring the, the dynamic um, energy that Jamal Adams is, brings. He's not as good of an athlete as Jamal Adams. He's not as hard of a hitter. He can't play in the box um, as well as Jamal Adams, but may beats him as, as a covered safety and may does have a little bit of versatility himself. So they're both very good safeties. And I'll put it this way. You want a realistic perspective on why Marcus may might be better than Jamal Adams. That's kind of vague. Cause you could say, uh, I will say this. I think Marcus May is better for the Jets than Jamal uh, for the Jets than Jamal Adams. He's less of a distraction. He's cheaper. You look at the draft picks that the Jets got for Jamal Adams. That's going to hopefully set up the future of this franchise. I mean, as much as I don't like Jamal Adams, what Joe Day, what Joe Douglas was able to get for him, I think is going to be a huge catalyst in turning this around quicker um, rather than having an elite box safety. Um, so I would rather given the cards, would I rather have Jamal Adams pay him, $15 million, let Marcus May walk and just have him, or would I rather have Marcus May not deal with the distractions of Jamal Adams and get those, those two first round picks. I'll take Marcus May every day. So I think the jets are better off with where, where they're at in their safety room. Um, but Jamal Adams is probably the better player. All right. Last question from at D Terraman, who was the most underappreciated player on the roster? Michael, you wanted to go first. So here you go. I, it's funny because actually now I was looking forward to taking some time to think about it while you talked but no i guess i'll have to take this one and go off the dome right now because i don't have the first one that comes to mind is tom's gentlemen i I was going into it but but now i got tom's tendency no which is a go-to answer the long snapper is always unappreciated (laughs) he's good but there's a better answer i I have a good one i have a really good one john franklin myers there we go i agree with that by the way both friends of the podcast there Yep. So, oh, okay, we're not being biased. These are these are legitimate answers. John Frank and Myers. Like Bryce Huff next. Yeah, Bryce Huff is going to be next. Then it's going to be Mike DeVito, even though he's not on the team. <laughs> um, but John Frank and Myers is 
a legitimately elite interior pass rusher. He had the second best in terms of the percentage of his pass rush snaps that he created pressure last year. Second best among interior D linemen behind Aaron Donald. So he is very, very good as a pass rusher. Another guy didn't have big sack numbers, but you watch him and it's not his fault. It's a lot of times he's creating pressure so quick that the ball is just coming out and he created impact in another way, just forcing an incompletion. He actually teed up the interception that Marcus May had against the Seahawks with a really good bull rush that forced Russell Wilson to scramble and make that throw. So he had a ton of plays like that. Amazing pass rusher on the interior. Um, I'll go John Franklin Myers. Yeah, he's definitely the best answer for this question, for sure. Um, if I'm trying to be different than you, most underappreciated. I I have an answer here, but I don't know if it's – I think I think John Franklin Myers is the answer. But underappreciated, I guess it's going to mean the fans really don't value them yeah. um, and are kind of just you know counting them out. I'm going to go with Chris Herndon. And I, that doesn't mean he's he's – uh, let me explain this. I think Chris Herndon is getting a ton of hate and everybody's kind of written him off uh, in his career. And look, I mean, the Jets clearly aren't because he's going to be the starter this year after an uninspiring um, 2020 season. But what Chris Herndon did as a rookie led me, you and I both, Michael, to believe that he was on his yeah. way to being one of the best tight ends in the league. Not maybe not the best, but he was on his way to being a, a very, very good starting tight end for this team. Uh, and I, I don't know what happened with him mentally last season. It clearly seems like a mental issue for him where it was just a confidence thing. I mean, he was dropping passes. He didn't normally drop. Um, he was fumbling. He just, he looked out of it mentally. Um, and I will say, I think everybody's kind of counting him off and people now have maybe a, a bit of a disdain for Chris Hernan is kind of what I've seen on, on Jets Twitter. Um, but I'll say this. I really believe that he can't be counted out just yet. I think we'll we'll see how he performs this season. If he's the star, he is the starter. This is probably his last chance. If he puts up another season like he did last year, he's going to be demoted to probably at the at most tight end number two, but maybe could be off the roster. Um, but I just think his ceiling is so damn high that everybody's just discounting him. He's another question mark on a team full of question marks. And although he may not be as um, I think the view on him is just is not as optimistic as it, as it could be. I still do believe that Chris Herndon can really turn this around um, just based off his rookie season. And he did come on a little bit towards the end of last season. Um, and I will say this, it's not like you don't want to read too much into this. Like we've talked about, you don't want to read too much into practices, but it's not like he was completely broken last year. I mean, he was per performing quite well in training camp and throughout practices throughout the year. Adam Gase is, I mean, he's not the best judge of talent maybe, but is referring to him as a unicorn. The Jets organization really, really believes in Chris Herndon. That's part of the reason they didn't go out and get another tight end, although they were reportedly interested in Johnny Smith. Um, they, but they didn't draft another tight end. Herndon's going to be the guy. And an offense that, judging off of Shanahan, loves 12 personnel, loves the usage of the tight end. And I think you're going to see Chris Herndon get a lot of reps. I mean, this is, I, I think that he's not George Kittle, but the Jets are going to have to use him as their George Kittle. He's going to have to be their starting tight end. That they, he's going to have to get involved in this um, in this offense. And we're going to learn a lot about him. I just think that the, the hate that Chris Herndon's getting is maybe warranted. But that's what I, I was going to say. I was going to say I, I think it's warranted. Honestly, it, it's warranted. But I just um, 
I don't want to count them out. I, I guess it's I'm not articulating it the way I, I guess I, I want to, but no, I, I just I feel think I think your points are good. The, everything you're saying makes sense, but I, I do think the skepticism is is warranted. But your points definitely make sense. He right, because it's inspired us a lot in 2018, so we shouldn't forget about that completely. Right, because it, yeah, it, it's it's not that the criticism and the lack of faith in him is unwarranted, but you're talking about underappreciated. I think people are forgetting that the potential that Chris Herndon has. Uh, and that, look, this is a guy who played his entire career outside of, uh, I guess, his first season when you saw the potential. He wasn't under Adam Gase. He was under Gase for two years. Why can't he be the next benefit of the uh, the post-Adam Gase curse being lifted? You saw it with Mike Kosicki in Miami. I feel like there's a chance that he gets away from Gase, he gets into this West Coast offense, and you could see him flourish and reach that potential that you saw in his rookie year and you saw in practices last year. So. I get the criticism for him, but I, I wouldn't count him out just yet. I think he has a very good chance to, to turn some heads this year. All right, Michael, I think that's, that's it for the mailbag. That's it for this podcast. We had a little longer than we expected, but we had to make up for, for a few weeks off. Um, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, we'll have our, our weekly episodes every Monday um, from here on out. Um, hour long, we'll probably do a few mailbag questions, maybe not as long as this one. A um, few mailbag questions every week, though, and just going over the topics. And then on Thursdays, we'll release – it'll be a special episode. It could be interviews, um, player profiles, positional breakdowns. We're planning on doing a, a, a podcast every week, breaking down each position group with the guest. We'll, we'll have interviews, and then we'll have game previews. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Two podcasts a week from Cool Your Jets. Um, you can follow us at CYJPod on Twitter. Um, please uh, subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. You can also find us at jetsxfactor.com. Go there for the best Jets content in the world. You can follow Michael at Michael underscore Nania and myself at Ben W. Blessington. That's going to do it for us. Uh, and as always, folks, you know what? I Maybe I should change it. I've always been saying don't let the Jets ruin your life, but I, I don't think it really fits the, the positive energy. What do you, okay, does, how about that I doesn't say, fit the vibe. How anymore. about I say all gas and then you say no break because that's totally not lame. That's right? totally not lame. All right, okay. let's do it. Let's do okay. it. Okay. All gas. No break. That was really lame. <laughs> Has to work quickly. Down to six seconds. Carr going down again. And it's Quentin Williams this time for the Jets. The middle in the air. Picked off. Ryan Poole to the end zone. Touchdown. The punter to beat. And the punter brings him down. Brayton Mann saved a touchdown most likely. Looks right. Fires a bomb down the right sideline again for Mims. What a catch by Denzel Mims.